Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I have been a photographer for over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week we explore one of these cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is inspired by the image entitled The Awakening, which is an image shot early in the morning, shortly after sunrise. The placement of the sun makes it look as if it had just awoken over the horizon line. However, it was a bit after sunrise, maybe 10 minutes or so. You see, there was a bluff on top of the ridge, and the cross was on that little bluff, maybe 5 to 7 feet high. And I wanted to be behind the bluff for the sun to get in the exact location that I was able to get this composition in. Actually, I'm on the side of the sloped bluff where it descends down to the ridge floor with the cross right in the middle of the decline and the sun right in the left corner where the bluff meets the vertical crossbar. The sun would have been a bit brighter, but there was a long cloud bank above and across the top of the bluff. In front of the sun, diffusing it a bit, and all across the image from left to right. This area is the amber color of the early morning sun, and the sky above the cloud bank is the kind of early morning blue that you would expect, with some small wispy clouds scattered around. And why did I choose the name The Awakening? Well, the most obvious answer is that the sun looks like it is awakening and greeting the new day. The dark night has ended and the dawn has broken through. The bluff side that I'm shooting from, the side that I'm looking at, is in dark shadow with all the grass on the bluff still in silhouettes. It feels like I'm still on the night side of the bluff, but that the ascending sun is about to flood the area I am in, rescuing me from the darkness. And the best place for me to start this devotional is from this light-saving perspective. The paradigm that the light, the light of the Lord, is about to awaken me and save me from a deep slumber. The Bible says we are all born into sin. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, all the humans ever born were born into the dark gloom of sin. We inherit the sleeping shadows of sin as if the DNA of an Adamic nature, human nature, is passed on to us. It is not as far-fetched as it sounds. There is a whole school of thought, 
a science actually called epigenetics, which studies how information and not just base DNA coding like what color my hair will be or what color my eyes may be, but actual life experiences from a parent that can be passed down to a child in the cells. One example is the experiment that introduced the smell of cherry while at the same time applying an electrical current, albeit a small current, to a mouse. At a certain point, the mouse flinches in anticipation of pain with even the slightest hint of cherry smell. What we found is that if you introduce the smell of cherry to an offspring, an offspring to the mouse, for the first time, they flinch in anticipation of something bad to happen. How can that be? And not just the first generations. In many of the studies, they have evidence that it applied to the second generation as well. Epigenetics comes from the Greek term epi, meaning revolving on or around the gene. It explains how genes can be switched on or off by triggers, say, chemical signals. The analogy I read says it is a bit like a dimmer switch on a light without altering the DNA structure itself. And to continue, these signals can alter the way genes produce proteins or signal other genes, and importantly, they can last months or years or can be potentially irreversible. These epigenetic switches are triggered by many factors, such as our lifestyle, environment, diet, ideology, theology, and our age. And as the development of a growing late-term baby in the womb is totally dependent on these signals, it can alter the function of its cells. In other words, genetics deals with the DNA information we inherit from our mother and father. And epigenetics examines the cellular information in the periphery that lead the offspring how to read the information. It infers that if a young child suffers major abuse, whether it be physical, emotional, sexual, it has an impact on how they handle stress in general and hormone generation specifically that can last the rest of their life. And the point is that the tendency can be passed down to their offspring and their offspring. The point is nurture has more of an impact on aspects like, let's say, diabetes tendency than we ever thought. And thus, if a person is indoctrinated in atheistic or socialist or Marxist set of paradigms, the chances are their offspring will not be as open to aspects of faith in a higher power, let alone specific details of the gospel. And in some cases, this offspring can be antithetical and hostile to religious concepts. In other words, in addition to the biblical paradigm that all of us humans are born into sin, the propensity to stay in a sinful mindset can be passed down to a prodigy and it many times to a second generation. On top of, or in addition to epigenetics, personalities and habits are passed onto us from our parents, or we imitate them and we acquire them through imitation. In this aspect, I'm not just speaking only about birth parents, because a baby learns from and copies language, tendencies, and dare I say personality traits from whoever it is that raises them. They learn good tendencies that they observe, and if, let's say, their parents or a guardian that raises them swears, lies, drinks, or does drugs in front of the children, children can imitate those traits as well. What this means to me 
is that we inherit our spiritual perspective, ethics, and our place in the universe. And even more than that, it means that the paradigm that says we humans, all of us, every one of us, are born into sin is not just biblical, but proven sociologically and scientifically. And the latter two amplifying the biblical scenario of being born into sin. Some refer to this status we are born into as all of us possessing an Adamic nature. This is something more than simply human nature. It is a sinful tendency to say, lie, cheat, steal, and so much more. If not for ethical parents providing boundaries, and if left to natural devices of the child, they can evolve into what some may call a bad person, and possibly even an evil person. And even with good parents, guardians, teachers, mentors, a child may grow up to be what can be viewed as a good person, but they still may be biblically ignorant and spiritually malnourished. I saw a survey stat recently that kids that do not go to church have about a 5% chance of starting to go to church on their own later in life. However, if they go with their mom, they have about a 32% chance of starting to go to church on their own later in life. But when the dad goes with the mom and the kid and the siblings to church consistently, the number jumps to 54% of a chance of continuing to go to church after adulthood. So I guess the way to express my perspective is that some kids may not have any spiritual direction at all. Some born into a religion have little, and even those who go to church constantly with their family, both parents, close to half will still become unreligioned after they become an adult. So the big truth here is that there's a large percentage of our population who are spiritually famished with no spiritual bearings, no north star, no light on the path of life essentially walking through life in the dark, stumbling through the events of life in total darkness. Some might say they are sleepwalking through life, physically alive, but their soul is sound asleep in the ultra-dimension around them, the dimension where angels and demons reside, snoozing so soundly they are completely oblivious to the presence of the kingdom of heaven around them, unaware of the abundant life that they can have in God. For years I taught teenagers in a Bible study class, and I was amazed. During the first night, not one of the 12 teens knew even one aspect of the Garden of Eden story. Not even one part of the story. But one positive perspective was that they were clean slates. (laughs) Empty sponges ready to absorb. But it was sad that none of them knew any story of the Bible, let alone the first big story. But how did this start? When did the phenomena of being born into sin begin? And how long has it continued? Generation after generation, in which the majority of every generation are spiritually comatose. Well, I just touched on it, actually. Speaking of the Garden of Eden, we read in Genesis 2.15 that when Adam and Eve sinned, they learned the consequences of their disobedience. You see, God had warned them when he took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. When the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, If you are listening to this program, you are most likely not like those kids. 
that I taught. Meaning, you recall that Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you also remember that Adam and Eve did not die right away. This creates one of the early conundrums in the Bible. Was God caught bluffing? Was God lying? Well, many say no, because many paradigms changed for that couple. The most memorable is that they all of a sudden realized they were naked. Interesting. If they did not perceive this before, what else may have changed in their mind and psyche and perception? Some postulate that something in this fruit was something ultra-normal, extraordinary, and to the point that Adam suddenly possessed a conscious. And consciousness being defined as being aware that you are aware. The real point here is that they did not die, at least not right away. But there is one aspect to consider. According to the Bible, Adam lived about a thousand years, 930 to be exact. And after his 56 children, we follow his genealogy and see that his prodigy lived a little less each generation until it plateaued around 120 years. In fact, Moses, the Bible says, lived 120 years. And there was a few accounts of Moses that, for me, connect to Adam. One account is about when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, when he came back to speak to the Hebrews, they say he was glowing. His time with God affected his natural body so much that his body, most likely his cells, were still in the process of absorbing and reflecting that energy. My theory is that when Adam spent time every day with God, God's light and energy did something to his cellular makeup as well. It reminds me of when I was a young adult, somewhere around 20, I had a pinched nerve in my neck, and it wasn't a little pain that caused me to go to the doctor, but when I began to lose strength in my arm, I could not even lift a container of milk. What was happening is that the electrical energy from the brain to the muscles was cut off. The electromagnetic energy is like food for the muscle. The pinch did not kill the muscle in the near term, but over weeks and months, the muscle was atrophying, meaning they were actually shrinking. This is my analogy for mankind after the fall. They slowly quit living as long as they used to. So when Adam and his prodigy were cut off from the presence of God, their lifespan got shorter until where it is now, meaning there are doctors who say that with the right variables, our bodies are built to live about 120 years. Of course, this is not the real point I'm trying to make. The core truth of our Judeo-Christian faith is something else. The paradigm I would like to refer to in this episode is that Adam lost his life in God. He lost the right relationship that he had with God. You see, an unintentional side effect of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is that Adam became by nature, a sinful creature. God is holy. He cannot abide with sin. Let's go back to what I said about humans becoming the first animal to gain consciousness. Of course, I don't think humans are an animal, but just to make the point, they were the first creature on earth that we know of to have this type of consciousness. But they also obtained the ability to sin and know that they had sinned and thus can choose to do what they think or know is wrong. Remember, the tree was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says all of us children of Adam, as Aslan calls us, are born with this side effect. Of course, we do see anomalies, bursts of holiness throughout history. One is Enoch. 
so holy that the Bible says he never died, but was translated directly into the heavenly dimension. After him was Noah, who was so holy we see God enter into the first covenant with man through Noah. And the next to receive a covenant was the holy Abraham, the patriarch to all the Hebrews that ever lived. And after that, there was a covenant with Moses, who led the nation of Israel to the promised land, or at least to the banks of the Jordan River, before he too was translated. We see other flashes of holiness throughout the Old Testament, like prophets like Elijah, who, like Enoch and Moses, was translated. But these are exceptions, not the rule. The rule during the days of the Hebrew priests was to sacrifice animals as the remedy for the entire population's sin collectively and individually. It was a barbaric tradition evolved from the fall in the Garden of Eden. But then something happened, something that entirely flipped the script of the human condition. Not a flash of holiness, not just a solar flare eruption of holiness, no. Much more like a galactic gamma ray burst from the deepest part of our universe of holiness. You see, when God overshadowed Mary, his electromagnetic energy was imbued in the cells of his son Jesus. and The ministry of Jesus sparked innumerable sparks of holiness through his interactions with people in general and relationships with his disciples more specifically. And his covert mission was revealed when he sacrificed himself for humanity. When the God particle energy in Jesus' cells were ripped out. This happened when all the sins of all humanity across all history were placed in and on Jesus. And this is something that in hindsight makes perfect sense. Why? Well, remember when I mentioned why Adam lost his relationship with God after the fall in the garden. Remember why? Because God is holy, and a holy God cannot dwell with sin. And when Jesus allowed his body to host the sin of mankind, all the evil of all of those sins inside of him, then God had no choice but to decouple from his son. That is, I believe, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was completely abandoned by man, who he came to save, and even God, his father, who he was supernaturally connected to, all of a sudden being not connected to. This is one of the reasons some believe Jesus died of a broken heart, not from the physical aspects of the crucifixion. But this sad aspect is actually the good news of the gospel. The good news is that the tragedy was part of the plan. Why? Because Jesus then took those sins and had to go where everyone who dies in sin goes. To hell. Wait a minute. Why would the most holy man ever born, man without sin, have to go to hell? That's my point. At the very last minute, he had sin introduced into him and thus went to the kingdom of Lucifer. And this is the huge reveal of the entire biblical narrative, which is that Jesus returned from hell with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. Then his lifeless body awoke and he rose from the dead. And this awakening is my answer to the question, what does the cross mean? In his resurrected body, Jesus was able to interface with people in general and his disciples specifically. This new body was so full of God's energy that it sparked awakenings in people all around him before and after the ascension. We see in the book of Acts huge flashes of holiness, like in the day of Pentecost when approximately 5,000 were awakened from their spiritual slumber and were born again. 
and so much so there were little flames of fire observed over certain people's heads. That's some incredible energy. And we see this power as one of the religious leaders of the time, one of the Pharisees, I believe. Not a, I don't think he was a Sadducee, but one of the religious leaders named Saul, who was the main tool that the other religious leaders used to persecute the Christians of the early church. When the resurrected Jesus decided to pay a little visit to Saul on the road to Damascus, and this introduction was so intense that it blinded Saul. This energy that I keep referring to was so intense it blinded him. And in that experience, Saul was awoken and reborn. His 180-degree conversion was so massive that he was one of the first Christians designated as a saint. The power of the resurrected Jesus has been visiting people and through that experience, awakening them to new life, what we call being born again. And over the last 2,000 years, some of these experiences with Jesus impacted people's life with new life so much that they too became saints. Between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, there are over 11,000 born-again Christians designated as saints, and many more beautified. The New Testament says we are all called to be saints. So while the number 11,000 plus many more beautified sounds like a large number, and it is in contrast to the Old Testament, how the power of Jesus can create such flashes of holiness with so many people, I dare say the 11,000 number is low, or it should be low, because we're all called to be saints. And for those who have had an experience with the resurrected Jesus, is not awakening them into a whole new life enough? Meaning, is it just enough to be born again? I would say no, because we're not talking about believing. If there are, like many of us think, a Lucifer and many fallen angels under his command, then we know that all of them not just believe in God, but they know of God because before the fall, they served God. What I'm talking about in regards to being born again through being awakened through an experience with Jesus is that it is much more than an intellectual, emotional, or theological construct, or at least it should be, when you invite Christ to dwell in you and ask him to allow you to dwell in him, then something happens deep inside of you, physically happens. It is my contention that the same electromagnetic energy that was in the cells of Jesus can be in you. Let me bring up my parents again to illustrate this point. Those of you who listen to my programs know that both my parents were heroin addicts. At one point, things for this four-year-old me that she allowed to happen were so bad that the state took me from her. And then she hit rock bottom. And sometimes people need that, the need to hit rock bottom, because for her it nudged her to reach out for help. She asked Jesus, if you're real, then please save me. He did. And her experience with the risen Jesus transformed her, like Saul becoming Paul. My mom was never the same again. She went from a heroin addiction, nicotine addiction through cigarettes and a foul mouth and a bitter personality, a rage from what I was told, to a joy-filled, loving, and radiant woman of God. No embellishment here. Her joy was so intense that it seemed like she glowed. And the Bible says that one who is forgiven much loves much. And so she went about sharing the Christ's energy and joy with others. Over the decades and in various ways including, for example, her time on the Anastasis Mercy Ship, she helped wake up literally hundreds of souls, from slumber to salvation. And in the economy of the kingdom of heaven, there are thousands of awoken souls from those 
hundreds. My wife, Verna, who God took took her home early when she was only 24, she also glowed. It was in her smile and the twinkle in her eye, especially when talking about God. She loved the Lord and it showed, as it should. She was awoken when she asked Jesus to live inside of her. And when she passed, she never really died. She just became in the presence of her Savior, Jesus. Now, I don't glow like she did, but I do have a steadfast joy in my heart, knowing that in my cells, I have Christ's energy flowing through me. And every chance I get, I like to direct the conversation with people to share the gospel, or at least plant a seed if I can, or at least pray for them when I interface with them. And then I've been told that when I am talking about things of God, they see a joy flash in me. At least that's what they tell me. The point is that when you are born again, you are resurrected with Christ, as Christ did. If Christ dwells in you, if Jesus dwells in you, then he and his energy will flow out in your words and actions. And even if you are not like my mom, you can share the love of God with those in your life. In James 2.18, James touches on a theological-philosophical conundrum between two camps of Christians when he said, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And remember the parable of the vine dresser. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Any branch that bears not fruit is cut off and cast into the fire. And even the branches that do have fruit get cut, but not all the way. They get cut back just enough to allow for the branch to regrow to reawaken in the spring, and to make even more fruit. Like the story I shared about my pinched nerve, the electrical energy needed to flow to my muscles. And in the parable of the vine, the energy of Christ needs to flow through you to the fruit. And the fruit will have seeds that will propagate even more fruit. In Luke chapter 10, we learn, in response to a question about what the greatest of the commandments were, Jesus said, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is as unto itself, meaning it is as important as the first, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. In a similar exchange, when a Pharisee asked, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus in Mark 12 used the same two commandments, to love your God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself, and then added, do this and you shall live. We see in this passage many truths. One is about Jesus saying that the second commandment is like the first. Huh. Which is, the first is to love God thoroughly. And Jesus is saying that to love your neighbor is just as important. How is that possible? Well, in Genesis 1, we read that God breathed his life into Adam. Therefore, we all that breathe have the breath of God in us. Yes, we are born into sin, but the proper perspective is to view every human as having the breath of God in them. And even if they are in a bad or dark place now, have faith. There's still a spark of God in that person and a potential to change. Now, the second truth is that Jesus said, do this, meaning follow these two commands and you will live. But remember, the question from the Pharisee was, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? But Jesus responded with a here and now response. Do this, I believe him to have meant, and you will have a full life, a joyful, loving, abundant life. And this is my point. A Christian called to be a saint loves God, loves his family, loves everyone he meets. And more than just the proverbial, proverbial, yeah, I, I love that person. No, they live out their love through actions. 
This episode is saying that when you allow the power of Jesus to awaken you when you first became born again, well then you want to strive to be as holy as you can to keep and enhance the indwelling of Jesus inside of you. And then you are to strive to awaken others and pass that Christ's energy onto them. To reiterate one last time, we Christians are called to be saints which to me is to make as many godly choices through every moment of my everyday, and then to share the joy of God to people so that they too can have this abundant life. Now, if you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? Ask Jesus to dwell inside of you and you and him. Doing so removes doubt, fear, and pain and provides the faith needed to endure every trial and strength to sacrifice whatever you are called to as Jesus did for the kingdom of God. Go, be that shadow of Christ today. And if you are not a Christian, I suggest you consider accepting the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and ask God to refine your soul, heal your heart, and imbue you with his energy today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program, heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this week's image, The Awakening, along with my other verspirations, then check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, school would like to learn how to fundraise through the cross products hear other cross podcasts then log on to roberholt.com that is r-o-b-e-h-o-l-t.com